So I enjoyed this conversation with Tom Goodwin. In it, he explores the topics of his second book, which in many ways is a rewrite of his first book. And the book is called Digital Darwinism, Surviving the New Age of Business Disruption. And in this podcast recording, we talk about how we need to look at the basics when trying to solve business challenges and personal success. Tom is known as an agitator in the advertising and marketing world. And it was interesting to hear him provide a word of warning about getting too distracted by shiny subjects like Web3 and the metaverse. Especially when more immediate opportunities can be worked on today. Hope you enjoyed the session. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Uh, thanks for listening. So I'm looking forward to talking about your new book. It reminded me about 10 years ago, I got a publishing agreement to kind of write a book. And I remember it's about like trends and innovation. And I remember writing like 10,000 words, how to find trends, which is about 8,000 words too much for actually how to find trends. And I remember submitting it to the publisher agent and they were like, thanks, where's the other 75,000 words? <laughs> and there was a point where I was like, do I want to give this publisher 75,000 words and spend whatever amount of time? Or do I just channel that and write blog posts, reports, events? And I walked away from the agreement. I was like, sod that nicely. I hopefully I was polite when I declined. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think about that story because you have this new book which seems to me that you've just rewritten your old book, which I kind of appreciate your style there. <laughs> it's, uh, it's horrible writing a book. And books are very strange things. This idea that they should magically be 70,000 words because that gives people a product that's thick enough on a bookshelf to read the title. And that gives something that's worth $20 for people to buy. It's a very strange container in a way. And I don't really like books. I don't like that you don't get to listen to what people think of it. I don't like the fact that you have to submit it eight months before it goes on bookshelves. Yeah. So whatever you write can't be particularly newsy. Um, otherwise you look like an idiot. Um, yeah. I'm not a big fan of the format. And I wasn't really that in love of doing another book, to be honest. Um, yeah. And then it slowly, it slowly gained its own momentum in my head and, and came out. Um, and it was supposed to be an update of the first book, but I ended up just looking at page one and basically kind of writing the entire thing again. And it became a very different book. So. Okay, I'd love to explore that a little bit. So the first book, it was around the age of business disruption, yeah? And when I look at Amazon, it's got like these amazing 93 great five-star reviews and stuff like that. So it it seemed to have been well-received when you first wrote that book, yeah? I didn't really want to write the book again. I wanted to write a brand new book, but in the middle of the pandemic, when my publisher was talking to me, I didn't really feel settled enough to write a brand new book. So I kept on saying no to a new book. And then we agreed reluctantly that I'd update the old one and I didn't really want to do that because I felt like it was still a good book I didn't feel like it was out of date so it was a weird sort of emotion starting to rewrite it and in, in retrospect what I should have done is just called it a brand new book written something quite similar to what I've written now but really tried to not fit it into the sort of the shape of the old one not use the same title 
um, mm-hmm. and just accomplish something very different. So it's a weird thing where apparently there's an expression in the movie business called a requill and a requill, a bit like Top Gun Maverick is almost a sequel, but it's also a kind of remake of the film. And it's very different, but it, it, it speaks to the same sort of vibes. It, it covers similar territory. And this one is quite similar in the attitude of it, the use of it. And the target audience is quite similar, but it is a completely different book. And without sounding commercial about it, if you like the first one, you would really enjoy the second one and think it's a better book and think it's a new book. So that's great. You can show the book. We want to. <laughs> yeah. So tell us what. So tell us what the book's about. It, it's trying to be more helpful. The first one, I felt quite naive when I was writing it. I was trying to talk about the world and how it's changing and how technology is changing the rules of business. But it was sort of asking questions. It was saying, isn't it interesting? But it wasn't very helpful. This is a much more confident proclamation almost of here are the things that are different in the world. This is what it means. And then this is what to do about it. Technology has not changed everything about the world. The pace of change, I don't think is faster than ever before. I think we're in a fairly typical kind of mid-technology cycle. But there are enormous opportunities for companies to change. There are enormous growth opportunities that can come from embracing technology in a more more profound and core way. And this book outlines very practical steps for what any person or small business owner or big business leader can do about that. And it's reassuring and helpful and practical. The topic of technology is obviously ginormous and it must be difficult for a brand retailer or whoever to like take a slice or even know where to start. No, exactly. And that's where the book came about, because you get a lot more famous if you go around saying the metaverse is going to change everything. You make more money as a consultant if you say, what's your Web3 strategy? And as a result, I think there's a kind of frenzy out there. There's there's a lot of confused people. There are a lot of people paying money to people to try to do stuff. And actually what we need to do is make sense of it. We need a more sort of context-driven approach towards it. We need to keep a change in perspective. We need to focus on what is a distraction. We need to be more simple. We need to be more empathetic. So the book in a way was trying to take what seems like a very complex changing world and fire and turn it into something that is much more pragmatic and clear and simple and reassuring. I'm sure that people who are active on LinkedIn or anybody with a business email (laughs) account is getting inundated with cool new ideas, either from Mm -hmm. their peers or they're getting, or from their colleagues. And um, sometimes it must feel like the the sky is falling. And I feel that your book is helping people like take a stop, stop and just analyze and have a better approach to kind of responding to all that. There's a very weird sort of dichotomy in a way, which is at the time when there's most talk about the metaverse, Web3, blockchain, 5G, AI, quantum computing, you name it. And these are quite outlandish and future things that don't have immediate ramifications. But at the same time, we've got a cost of living crisis, we've got inflation, we've got out of stocks, we've got radically changing behaviours, we've got really tough environments in the stock market, we've got these really existential earthquakes almost and 
it's bizarre to me. Um, somehow people's attention is on the more outlandish and future stuff rather than the more day-to-day -day real stuff. Maybe, maybe it's a sort of escapism. Maybe it's more fun to be in a brainstorm about the metaverse and not about the fact that you don't know where your stock is. But enough is enough. Let's get a little bit more real. It's not boring to try and solve inventory problems. It's not boring to try and find a way to reduce costs in the back office. It's really important. I'm always fascinated with how long these more macro themes last, mm. whether we're talking about omnichannel or mm. personalization. We were talking about them like eight years ago, 10 years ago, but it still matters. And, and technology in the store and the use of data in the, in the store is, is still important, still undervalued or underdelivered. And so it's just interesting to A, think about that, and then also then think about the implications. Then I think about a cultural thing we talked about. Maybe about five years ago, we were talking about fluidity in like the trends decks and stuff like that. And today you have obviously great progress, but then you also have a great reaction to that. People are protesting and confused about how to respond to this trans rights and things. And I think sometimes when we're just thinking about trends in the future, everything is very positive. And we're like, <laughs> actually the metaverse is gonna create these different situations. It's gonna be a dark verse and what happens there. But we're always just trying to think about, yeah, it's gonna be great. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's absolutely the case. There are lots of dark things that are happening, will happen, have happened. I do feel like as an industry, we tend to over-index on those problems. We enjoy being miserable at the moment. We enjoy looking at sort of stories that make us feel worse. And there's almost like the right amount of ignorance to have. And I don't try to be ignorant, but I try to focus on the things that have real significance for a lot of people. And that's not to say that those topics you mentioned don't, but when it comes to our role and our remit, we almost need to divide our head into our human being hat and our career hat in a way. And some of these things aren't necessarily central to the way that we do our jobs. Yeah, I like that kind of blinkering because I think people forget that magazines, newspapers, they have an objective to create attention or mm. you know, draw attention with stories from the fringes, dramatic mm -hmm. stories of the drama. And I think sometimes we get a little too fixated in a fringe story and think yeah. it's mainstream or think it's mainstream today. Anyway, it's, they're all probably very important to think about going forward, but what can you do right now? <laughs> I think in a way, one of the great tragedies of the pandemic has been that we spent more time online and surrounded by the result of these algorithms. Mm -hmm. There's a great sort of irony almost in the digital world has made everything binary. And what I try to do is I put a lot of effort into going out into the real life into weird towns that we don't normally go to, weird, sad department stores that are closing down, into budget fitness chains. I play golf on both expensive courses and very cheap courses. And when you talk to most people, like the realities of most people's lives are pretty good. That's not to say that people aren't anxious, but the quality of problems they have are generally better. People mm. are now outraged about things that are probably less outrageous in a way. Not in every case. 200 years ago, we would have dreamt of having the problems we have today. We would have found yeah. it amazing that obesity is a bigger problem than hunger. We'd find it incredible that a huge issue is a population time bomb because people are living so long. Um, and it's having effects on, on healthcare provision. We'd find it amazing that we have problems with climate change because we're used to flying around the world for an incredibly 
small amount of money relative to what it should cost. We've created wonderful problems and we will carry on creating wonderful problems. And at some point we need to look at the fact they're problems. And at some point we should look at the fact that they're wonderful problems or they're smaller problems or they're different problems. And you're saying that going outside is a way to consider how to respond to them or at least understand them or the wonderful thing about real life is there aren't really algorithms there trying to direct you and get you to talk to different people and get you to feel something if you walk into a bar and you listen to people if you sit on a plane and observe people if you take part in a you know high school football match and listen to people in the audience mm-hmm. you know you realize when there's not algorithms that are making decisions for us without us realizing you, you realize that lots of people have a point you realize that very few people have bad intentions people may choose to go about their life in extraordinarily different ways i'm not yeah. remotely religious and when you meet someone that is very religious it's it's extremely disconcerting but then you realize that this person has the same problems they have the same insecurities they have the same need for belonging one person may have got that belonging from supporting the yankees one other person may have got that belonging from religion or someone else might get that from star signs someone else might get that from luxury brands yeah. um but we all have these sort of frameworks <laughs> i mean and- it makes me think a little bit about dangers of virtual work in the fact that, yeah. hey, I try, this sounds very privileged, but once a week at least to, yeah. to work at a WeWork in Williamsburg. Yeah. Which sounds very privileged. But it puts me, <laughs> Williamsburg is like the new Soho of New York. Yeah? <laughs> it's like, it has retail and commerce and it has some fringe stuff all mixing. It's quite, it's a great place just to see the world and see what's going on. Privileged world, but can, at least I can get a glimpse. Yeah. Uh, and I just think, Sitting in my house two miles away in Brooklyn is very nice, but I don't see that sort of energy. And at the same time, I often go to Pennsylvania and I do try to go into the towns and sit at the coffee shops. And I'm in Media PA, which is a lovely little town in outside <laughs> Philadelphia. But you get to see people with different uh, political views than you and different and Uh, and are conflicted with some of the things that you accept. But at the same time, they are regular people just trying to get through their lives as well. And to have a curiosity towards it, I think, is the most important thing. Somehow we've almost entered an environment where people are most proud to to not be interested. I loathe guns. I think guns are one of the worst things that could ever exist in the world. I think they're incredibly anachronistic and a very disappointing, pathetic thing. But... Even so, I enjoy talking to people who own guns and listening to how they explain that. And I would never be proud to not be interested. And yeah. somehow people almost think that means that I'm on their side or that means that I'm not as puritanical in my feelings about guns. But actually, it's a really important exercise to work out those muscles, to work out their empathy, to change your opinion, to see things from a different perspective. It sounds very pathetic and it's nothing new. But, but somehow we're not in an environment where people do that much. And I think face-to-face is a really key part of that. I'm a big believer in the energy, like you say, of being together. But I'm also a big believer in stuff that we see as being unnecessary. Gossip is quite a useful way that people get informal feedback on ideas. It's a useful way that people progress. It's a useful empathy builder. Every single important conversation I ever had in my career was me saying, hey, do you have five minutes? And there's no equivalent to that in a kind of Zoom world, I don't think. 
Yeah. Let's talk. Are let's you okay? Talk. People don't say, are you okay in the same way? Yeah. Our body language. Yeah. Or you're waiting for the kettle to boil and you're like, what's the latest with you, man? Uh, exactly. And let's take that moment. You've been through a transition yourself. You used to be like this career marketer, mm-hmm. you know, working for big agencies. And now I speak to you. You are one of the expats living in Miami. <laughs> and I, my assumption is you're more of a consultant now. Are you enjoying yourself? And tell us a little bit about the transition and how you felt about it and how you made it work. Yeah, absolutely. I'm enjoying myself. Again, that doesn't mean life is problem free. It just means I've got different problems. I love the sort of freedom. I love the self-determinism, but that also means that you feel a vulnerability and there's a lot more going anxiety when it comes to how much you accomplish. The best thing about being your own boss is your own boss, but at the same time, you are also your own boss and therefore (laughs) you have to beat yourself up. The transition in a way was strange because it was catalyzed by what happened with me and Publicis, but it wasn't something I wasn't already planning on doing. I absolutely adore the world of advertising. I love advertising people. But it always bothered me enormously. The domain that we were given to operate in was only really the world of communications. Um, I'm fascinated by what happens when you take the way of thinking, the ambition, the sort of ingenuity and the sort of empathy of advertising people and you apply them in a much broader way. All I see as I go about my life are things that could be better. You pay for gas at the pump and it takes an extraordinary amount of time to pay before you start dishing out the gas. You buy clothes from a store and you see that the way that they're displayed hasn't really changed since the internet changed the way that we think about clothing. And all I see are wonderful kind of opportunities and little problems that advertising people would be able to produce really interesting work. And that's that's my big goal now is to try to apply that thinking to clients and to try and solve more meaty business problems. And it's fascinating, but it's exhausting. The process of reinventing yourself um, is absolutely exhausting. You know, we're not designed to do this. We're not designed to move to new cities and need new friends. We're not designed to need a new network of people to work with. We're not designed to not have a sort of workplace hub where you've already got friendships that kind of, well, maybe friendships are the wrong way, but you've already got a system of people that are somewhat aligned to what you find interesting. So it's very tiring. Yeah. There must be people who are thinking about change or have their partners whispering in their ear, why don't you just quit? But maybe there's a couple listening who are going, I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Any words of advice about that change? Um, I'm not sponsored by Dr. Pepper, but what's the worst that can happen? I think we have a very strange distortion of what is unfair in life and what is horrible in life. And this makes me sound really old and privileged and like a disgusting human being. But we are designed so that a bad day is being eaten by a sort of an animal. We are designed such that we get incredibly hungry and some people die of starvation in the winter. And we move from that to a bad day being difficult childbirth or someone's one of someone's sort of 15 kids dying or something. And now we become so sensitive. We think a terrible day is someone that writes back to us with a slightly curt email. Or we think that a horrendous career decision is one where we spend a year of our life working for a company that we don't like that much before getting a really good job afterwards. So I think we need to change our perception of what is 
horrible and what is risky. We are still in a very strange economy, but the job market appears to be really good. It's really hard to change jobs, but that's where all the growth comes from. Everything that's worth doing is actually really hard. And I think sometimes we forget that. We think that things being hard means that we're not good at them. Yeah. I was just thinking, I was thinking about how my kids have to like study (laughs) and swear exams. And I don't do any of that. I don't, you know what I mean? Like, remember how hard they work. And then suddenly the pressure is completely different, but somehow we're like, we're together. I did summer jobs at university where you would have to hold like a pneumatic drill um, for maybe eight or 10 hours a day, just going. And you would do that from like Monday to Friday. Yeah. And you wouldn't moan about the fact that you couldn't work from home. You wouldn't moan about the fact that the foreman talked to you in a funny way that day, or they took the piss out of you for being posh or something. I don't know, somehow we've just become very... No. Although you remember that. <laughs> I was, I I was a milkman um, for two, two yeah. summers during my college years, and I wake up at four o'clock, and they were very formative in many ways, even though it had nothing to do with what I do today. Yeah, I think we have this weird thing where I think, and again, I'm sounding like some sort of curmudgeon, the old man, but... I think somehow we expect things to be quite easy now. You know, like in the olden days, if you didn't know something, you might have to walk to school and find the encyclopedia the next day. You wouldn't know stuff. It was hard to find things out and everything was quite hard. And I don't think we realized it. And now I obviously write quite a lot and people all the time will be like, oh, you're a good writer. Have you got amazing skills? And I'm like, no, I just, I I started writing and I was shit. And then I carried on and I got a bit better. And then I just did it about, you know, 10,000 times. And now I've done it 10,000 times. Sometimes it doesn't feel that hard. There are days when it feels incredibly hard still. And it would be very easy, I think, with a modern perspective to think, oh, wow, one, I must be lucky because I can write well. No, I've worked really hard. Two, um, it must be easy after a while. No, it's not. And three, if you're not that good at it, you know, the fact you find it hard is the universe telling you that you're not good at it. That's not true at all. Do you think anyone that's, you know, muscly, was just born muscly. No, they went to the gym a lot. I think we should have yeah. a bit more admiration for people that put the work in it. And people who look good with their bodies. <laughs> Someone. Maybe this final bit, we'll just talk about how you establish yourself. So you just, we talked a little bit about moments of reinvention. You had to create change. And then we've just started talking about how you position yourself in the market as an expert. Okay. And we talked about writing is a big part of that. And so you're sharing uh, through social updates, I guess. I hope, do you have a newsletter as well? I don't. I think in some ways I'm almost so contrarian that I am spiteful and I don't yeah. do things that are sensible to do. And maybe a little bit arrogant. Like I've got sort of 700 and something thousand followers on LinkedIn. So I, I tend to think that if people yeah. want to listen to me, they'll find a way. Yeah. And so uh, would you say that's the main focus? What other things are you doing to kind of position yourself today i haven't really figured it out to be honest um there's a great irony about the fact that my business is called all we have is now which is rooted in urgency and action and i've kind of spent longer procrastinating than i would ever want to admit to and it comes really from a big problem which is what i think i'm best at and what i think the world needs the most and what i would enjoy the most is this sort of empathetic, creative problem-solving approach. But expertise is much easier to sell. Sort of future exciting things like the metaverse or NFTs are much easier to sell. 
um, execution is much easier to sell than thinking. And therefore, I'm always struggling the degree to which I should be true to who I am and accept that I'm quite hard to buy versus go through a process of productization and sort of commercialization where I'd end up being much more financially exhilarating, but I would lose a bit of my soul in a way. Well, I think that's the paradox of that's the, the problem. And I reflect upon myself a little yeah. bit there. I listen to you about some days you have to pursue your art and some days you have to pursue your design because yeah. the design sells, but the art is that kind of what keeps you, makes you special. And um, yeah, I can understand the sort of concern about productization. I guess the challenge is there's only so much income that you can make as an individual. Probably. And I think that's the challenge with kind of the pursuit of art. Exactly. And when, um, when you look at all the levers you need to pull to, to do the things which make everything more lucrative, every single lever is not the one I want to pull. Like, I, I don't want to be a CEO of, of an agency where you're making money from people's time by paying them less than you build them out. I want to be on every project. I don't want to make money from doing stuff. I'd rather make money from advising. But I used to have lots of clients say, Tom, we need an Apple Watch app. Please design an Apple Watch app. And I'd say, you don't need an Apple Watch app. And about three years later, they'd say, thank you. But at the time they'd say, all right, well, we'll find someone else. You know, yeah. Wouldn't it be amazing? And isn't, you like, you're, isn't your boss and screaming at you like, <laughs> you just lost us money, you know, no, lost exactly. us $200,000. Exactly, yeah. but it, it would have been much better for the client to pay us $30,000 to make a deck showing they didn't need one that gave them plausible reasons to tell their boss why not to make one. Like it would have been better for them to pay us $30,000 and not make a, an Apple Watch app than for them to spend $500,000 making the app and then another million promoting it, even though no one wanted it. But it's quite hard to get paid for the businesses saying, notice stuff for example but like i'm very lucky to have the followers i have i'm very lucky to have the sort of awareness that i have and i, I don't need to be elon musk i just need to have enough money to have uh, a life which feels like i have not huge anxieties all the time um living in miami beach is quite odd because everyone has so much money here and it's on display and the number of sort of 25 50 million dollar penthouses you go to um, from people with quite empty lives, you know, the number of, of sort of garages where there's a classic car collection because people had this need that wasn't satiated. And I, I feel really lucky that actually all the things I really like doing are quite cheap. Um, yeah. Well, for a moment, I thought that Miami was chilling you out. It's allowing you to have a pause and think about what do you want yes. to do in life? A, a little bit. Um, there's that sort of Baz Luhrmann song, like Sunscreen, like live in New York City once, but leave before it makes you hard, live in Southern California and leave before it makes you soft. I think they should add the line, live in Miami, but leave before it makes you lazy. Because there is something <laughs> about being somewhere where the temperature is always safe and where most things can't eat you. Wait, you don't really worry. Like you don't really worry if you get locked out of your house because you can just sleep outside. You don't really worry about a horrible thunderstorm coming. And there's a sort of carefree spirit here, which is very helpful for creative things, mm. very good for self sort of introspection. But it's terrible when it comes to urgency and greed and ruthlessness and competitiveness, because I just tend to sort of look at a lizard in a tree and enjoy that.
Let's go back and quickly summarize what the book's about and why I should. You should buy it, Piers, because it makes sense of a changing world. The world is full of people saying everything's different. The world's unpredictable. It's volatile. It's uncertain. It's chaotic. What earth are we going to do? And this just gives you a hug and says, don't worry, things are going to be fine. Here are three things to, to focus on. So it's sort of reassuring um, and hopefully correct. That's great. After this kind of uncertain, chaotic conversation, <laughs> maybe I'm just going to read it to help me through this conversation. Yeah, yeah. you would enjoy it. Well, so I'm good when I really appreciate it. I have to check, I encourage everybody to check out the book, Digital Darwinism, Surviving the New Age of Business Disruption, available in all good e-commerce retailers. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks, mate. <laughs> This has been Piers Forks. Thanks everyone for listening to this Project of Energy podcast, a series where I hope to interview creative and progressive leaders as they invent new ideas and reinvent themselves. If you have any comments about this podcast, or if you'd like me to ask the interviewee more questions in a follow-up recording, email me at peers at Meanwhile, subscribe on your favorite podcast player or check us out at projectofenergy.com. And do check out my other Projects of Energy, PSFK, Retail Innovation Week, and Walk It.